Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Daniel McLaren is the Senior Manager of Live Operations at ArenaNet. I've known Daniel for a while now, ever since he was working in a games company here in Helsinki. He then moved back to the States to work on Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Daniel is one of those people who really love the industry and the people who make games. We talk about culture, hiring, and dealing with hard times. I want to talk to you about one of our sponsors, Tresta. Tresta is a mobile app that lets you do business calling and texting from anywhere. With Tresta, you can set up your local or toll-free business phone number, download the app, and start calling and texting unlimited right away. This is so important for entrepreneurs working in the games industry. Trying to keep your overhead under control while coding, working to fund your games company, leading and working with your team, communication is key. Tresta is the best business phone app on the market. Whether you're just starting out and need a business phone number, or your business is ready for a full business phone system, Tresta offers the call management features that empower you to communicate smarter and more effectively. All their powerful call management features are included. Everything from automatic attendance to call recording for user groups and so much more. And it's just $15 per user per month with no contract and you don't need any special equipment. Just your smartphone you're already using. Start your free 30-day trial today at Tresta.com elite. That's www.tresta.com elite. Hey, Daniel, right. we're live now. <laughs> I just hit record, so... Excellent. I'm ready. Yeah, good, man. Let's, <laughs> let's continue where we left. We were just talking about type A. What is a type A person? Can you explain that? Sure. So we were talking about managing uh, people and, and teams uh, and team composition and a team composition that really works for your studio. Yeah. And the thing that I found as a manager... A big part of my job is not telling people what to do. Hey, you do this thing, you do the thing. But it's knowing who your people are, the types of individuals they are, how they need to be addressed or interacted with, uh, and then letting them thrive accordingly. Mm. When you work in a company, and, and I'm gonna, I'm only picking on EA because it's a, it's an easy target, and structurally they're still trying to, I think, trying to figure out how to manage people. But yeah, you know. They don't have no, but in fact, none of the corporations, Disney, EA, any of the big companies I've ever worked for, they don't have a process to teach managers, right? You get promoted and you're a lead. Mm. And so you have these personality types, right? So the type A, this is a person that, you know, they really don't want one on ones, right? If you say, like, hey, I'd like to schedule one on one with you, they're like, yeah, 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 whenever. Uh, they're the person that will finish their entire sprint's worth of work in like mm -hmm. three days. Uh, yeah. And then take on a ton of other stuff. They're very motivated. They're awesome. Um, and they're the kind of person that um, they really become the linchpin of your productive output. Mm. The, the downside, like you don't want a lot of type A's. 
because they can be hard to direct in some ways, and uh, they can be a little bit less social, and they can you can find your project being a little off spec because they'll just like, hey, I built this thing, or you know, I, I really don't want to do that. I'm going to do this thing. So they're great in a lot of regards. And the wonderful thing about them, as soon as you identify type A, it's more like, hey, I'm going to force you to do a a one-on-one every two weeks, just every two yeah. weeks. So we stay in touch. We stay, uh, you know, we keep a relationship going. Then you have kind of on the exact other end of the spectrum. I don't even know how to label these people because I think we just start getting into like, you're a type D. That sounds so bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean it like that. But you have people who need to be micromanaged. Um, mm. In both of those camps, what I find is it's very challenging to find good type A people and good, I'll just call them type D. I don't mean it as a derogatory statement, but it's a way to kind of classify good type D people because their fundamental problems on each end will be their lack of service. Mm. The best employees that I've always found have a servant's heart, uh, so to speak, right? The idea of, hey, I'm part of a team. I'm building something that's not for me, but is for others. How do I not make this about me? How do I make this about like, how can I help the team get better? Somebody who needs to be micromanaged is not necessarily a bad employee, right? They may be a, I've had people who needed, you know, a lot of reassurance, a lot of, you know, they needed weekly one-on-ones and sometimes some extra time in between, you know, they're, they're people who are very uh, more emotionally centered, right? So they're, they're more in tune with kind of, how do I feel? How do other people feel? I find that people in that camp tend to be a little bit more empathetic in the sense of like, this feels good. This feels right. And they'll do, you know, if you find the right person, they'll do great, great work, but they need encouragement. They need to hear that they did a good job. They need to know that you've acknowledged them. There is nothing wrong with that. I tend to fall into that camp, not the full micromanaging, but I do need verbal reassurance or contact with my manager. I need to know that I'm on the right track. I need to know that, you know, uh, you know, when I was younger, it was a lot. It was really probably in more of the negative sense. And I've had good managers over the years who helped me kind of realize like, hey, man, don't live in your head. Yeah. You know, do the best job you can. Most of the time, most managers operate from, uh, they're afraid of conflict. So they won't engage their reports in a, in a way that's like, hey, you screwed up. Let's talk about how you screwed up. Let's talk about how we can do better. Let's set a path to, to success. 99% of the managers I've worked for have never done that. Um, I've had a very small number who you know, didn't look at coaching or disciplining their employee as a, as a negative conflict but it's a positive conflict. And so you get a lot of managers who wait until they can't, well, you're just a failure. We're going to have to have a chat. Now I got to write you up. And it's like, yeah, yeah, nobody likes that. Yeah. So it's basically the outcome is that either they're playing for themselves or they're playing for the team. But would you rather skew it towards constantly playing it for the team? Or do they perform better when they're doing stuff that is kind of like on their own road, Mac. What, what do you think? Like, Absolutely. Like I said, I want type A's on the team, right? The perfect type A to me is the one who's, who's, got, the ba- who's got self-awareness and balance, right? That's a mature person. We call that person either a senior, um, you know, or we think of those people as highly experienced, right? Somebody who's approaching 10 years in any job 
if they've had a couple of good managers, they're starting to be really self-aware and really cognizant and know when to turn their strengths on and when to not you know, step on the gas pedal, so to speak. So obviously, the perfect person <laughs> is someone who knows when to be motivated on their own and then knows when to be in a service mode, right? But that said, that's really hard to find. And usually those people are in really good positions. They're, you're not really going to hire them out. So when you're hiring, it's okay to have, you know, depending on your team size, a handful of type A's who are just like motivated because they're going to drive, they're, they're, they're your production workhorses, right? And they're going to call you on your, your, your uh, delusions. You know, oh no, we can do this. And they're going to be like, nope, not possible. And hopefully what you can do if you have good management structure, people management structure, is you can actually get that person to that mature place. Now, would I want a team comprised of a majority of non-self-aware type A's? No, that would be that's a headache, that's a lot of conflict and I think the personally speaking, I think the result of conflict and and uh, frustration personally I'm I'm getting too old for that. <laughs> I'm not interested, you know. So, yeah, I think there's a balance. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Then going back to kind of like where you were at the start mm. of your career, let's go back there and think about your way coming Oof. into the game industry and like first being in your head and then coming out from your head and seeing. Sure. <laughs> can, can you walk us through a bit like that transition sure. for you into the industry? So I never, uh, so growing up, we were really poor. So I didn't have a computer. We didn't have a Nintendo. I grew up in the I was born in the 70s, so I grew up through the 80s, and uh, I graduated high school in the mid-90s. I was introduced to computers because we happened to live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and our school was one of the first to get old school, well, at the time they were brand new, Apple IIcs, and that blew my mind. I was like in the second or third grade, and I was just like, this is the most amazing thing. And so my entire growing up was just like, I would stay after school and play on computers in my graduating class, no joke, I was probably the only one who had even used a computer with any sort of serious outside of a like, oh, we got to introduce them in our high school computer class or whatever. Yeah. And um, even now in my generation, up until maybe the internet really started taking hold in the early 2000s, I literally in my entire, I, I went on to a career in computers, you know. So I never, but I had never really played games. Yeah. I didn't really, my first real game that I played is I bought a brand new PlayStation 1. I bought, uh, and this was like 96, 97. I bought a brand new PlayStation 1. I bought Resident Evil and I bought Final Fantasy 7. Uh, now on the computer, we did get a computer when I was in my late, like 17, 18. My dad started really doing well in the fire service, and then you know we were able to get a computer. But I played stuff like Myst, uh, SimCity, uh, Rome. So I'd never played an RPG. I'd never played an RPG. So Final Fantasy VII was my first RPG, and it blew my freaking mind. Like blew my freaking mind. But I hadn't thought about like a career. Like that was not a thing. And so I, you know I started growing up, bought my own computer. I got married at a young age and I went through a divorce at a young age. And when I did, my entire kind of career path that I had, I was in IT and, and uh, kind of fell apart. And I didn't know what to do. 
And uh, so I signed up for a trade school that was doing game programming. And I went for about a year and a half. I met my current wife, who I've been married to for 15 years now. And I met some good friends. And about a year into it, I got hired as a junior community manager for an MMO that never shipped. Uh, Star Trek Online, which did ship, but with a different company. And Gods and Heroes was the company I was working for for those two games. And so I was like, all right, I got what I came for. I got a wife and a, <laughs> and a really cool job. I'm out. So I just stopped. I was never a school person. Yeah. So I never got my degree or anything like that. And so I started as a junior community manager 15 years ago. Uh, and the guy who was designing Gods and Heroes was the lead designer of Diablo 2 and the expansion pack. He'd worked on, he'd done the lead design on Rainbow, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six way back in the day. Super veteran dude. He took me under his wing. We wound up becoming pretty decent friends. I still talk to him this day. I have a ton of respect for him. And he got me my first design job on Vanguard Saga of Heroes, working for the now deceased uh, Brad McQuaid. Rest in peace, buddy. I miss you. Uh, and that was, that was it, man. I, I just took off from there. Wow. Did you have scary moments, like cool, like, you know, epiphanies about gaming? Like, do you remember any kind of like moments regarding like how the early years were? Uh, yeah, I was a jerk in my early years. And I think uh, like I was super arrogant. I thought I knew what I was doing. And uh, I would say that the first five years were pretty rough, pretty rough because I was super outgoing. You know, you know me talkative, outgoing, but I, I was not sensitive to other people, you know? And so I would do and say things without thinking about how other people would feel about it. Um, I would gossip, you know? And, and so I went to Disney and I almost got fired uh, from Disney. That was a pretty rough time, I, but I was there for almost four years and I wound up getting promoted in the end, but I had a really good boss. I had two really good bosses, a woman by the name of uh, Rachel DePaula, who was our executive producer, and a woman by the name of Becky Bruza, who was my direct boss. Hmm. Becky probably took the brunt of my emotional you know, stupidity, but both her and uh, Rachel really, really were instrumental in helping me realize that I was selfish and that that I was not thinking about others and that I was only thinking about myself. And I would get mad. I would be like, well, that's a stupid design. You guys don't know what you're doing and this is dumb and you should do it this way. And at the time, I was the only person on the team who had actually had real game design experience. Uh, and so uh, I wound up getting laid off from another job. So I left Disney. I went to another job. I wound up getting laid off from that. And that was a real, that was the big moment where I was like, I'm a jerk. I'm a jerk. And I don't like this person that I am. Who I am at work is different than who I am at home or with my friends. And I didn't like that. And so there was this really, I took another job. uh, This is where I got into mobile. I took another job with a mobile studio in uh, Long Beach, California. And the owner and I, within six months, we both realized like we didn't want to work for each other. And what was interesting is that was the first job that I went in taking all the stuff. And I was like, I literally told myself, I'm going to be, I'm going to really work on 
humility yeah. in this job. And I'm going to really work on just being about serving. Mm. You know, when it's your first time out, when you've learned this lesson, of course, you're not going to be perfect at it. Um, he and I got into a bit of an argument, which in retrospect, I was right. I was absolutely right about it. We can see the fruits of the... And I'm not going to get into it because I'm not blaming him. But he was just a person who... He fell into the, the gaming aspect and, and how he founded his company. And you know he sold it. He's gotten a lot of money. I wish him the best. I have no ill. Um, it just came down to he didn't have the experience and I didn't have... I was still working on the humility. So it worked out for me in a great way. It was a great practice. And it was the first moment where I was I was driving to work and I was like, I'm going to resign um, because I recognize that this is not a good fit. I recognize that I can't bring value to this particular company. And I recognize that um, my boss and I are not ever going to gel. We're never gonna we're never gonna get to that spot. And 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 a lot of that's on me just because I knew I, I was still trying to trying to grow yeah. as a person. You know, man, and I'm like 30 at the time. So that's a hard thing. You think, you know, like 30 you're supposed to have things figured out. Yeah. Uh you know yeah. and so that was that was a pivotal moment. And it was from there that I wound up going to Finland mm. and the kind of the whole you know a bit of the the whole story there. Yeah. The end of that time in Finland was was very very difficult. To this day, I still look back on that and I think like, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? You know, there's a lot of that that is like, I, I don't want to assign a percentage, but I think it's one of the moments where I can look back and I can say like, that one wasn't my fault. You yeah. know, I, could there were there things I could have done better? Knowing the personalities of the individuals involved, could I have, you know, uh, approached them differently? Absolutely. But fundamentally, I still would have come to a spot had it not transpired the way it did. I still would have come to a spot and been like, "I'm out." You know what I mean? You start like as you've been in so many different kind of companies and cultures. Do you think you can spot? it early on now, what is working, what's going to work out, what's not going to work out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have now, I've gotten to a spot where pretty much, even in the interview process, I can kind of go, in fact, I got an offer. Yeah, I, I uh, about, so when ArenaNet was going through its first kind of troubled phase, I was trying to get work so that I... Because I knew I was going to be in the round of layoffs because it wasn't working out at the time. Uh, what they wanted, they were still kind of in the like, we're like Blizzard. We just release whenever we want. And that wasn't really working out for them. And and I wanted to... I came to do stuff. I came to make games and that wasn't happening. So I was like, well, I'm going to... And they knew. I was very open with them. I was like, look, we're going to do... I know layoffs are coming. No, we're not. No, I've been through this before. I can see it coming. I'm volunteering to be on the roll, okay? Mm, um, yeah. And to know in the in, in the interim, I'm going to attempt to try to get work. So I was interviewing with this company and I really liked the creative director. I really, really liked the creative director. And I was uh, pretty excited about the stuff they were doing. But the guy that I would report to, the project director, the lead designer slash project director, within five minutes of our interview, I was like, I can't. Like, 
he might we might be able to go and get drinks together or something but i can't like we will not be able to work together his personality type not that it was a bad personality type i just recognized that i was going to frustrate him uh and i was likely going to be frustrated with him and so i t- i got the offer and it was a really generous offer and i turned them down and the creative director didn't you know he we were talking and i explained to him i was like it's nothing against your guy I think he's fine. I think your game is going to be fine. I think he's competent. But I just have gotten to the point where it's like, I know that it's going to be, even if we come to a spot where we can work together professionally, yeah, it's not going to be something that I really want to work towards. Not that I don't want to be friendly with people. I just didn't. It's like, it's not going to be, you could find a better person. Yeah. You could find a better person. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, in the moment when you're kind of interviewing and meeting those people, there's then there's those moments when a product, a game fails mm-hmm. and it's not, you know, there's the project is killed or something early on already. But there's been effort put into it. There's yeah, been yeah. A game. Uh, I think that's a strong place to see like how the culture reacts to these kind of events, how the management yep. and leadership reacts, yeah. right? Yeah. Absolutely. And the problem, man, is, so my, I think my biggest frustration uh, with the industry goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, nobody's trained to be a manager. Um, you know, a lot of what I learned on how to manage people came from my father, who was a, a fire chief. He had been a lieutenant, a captain, and then a fire chief. Mm. And, um, you know, there's training that you go through uh, because it's government, right? And government doesn't want to get sued. And so every time they get sued, they develop a training <laughs> program around how not to get sued for this thing. Yeah. So my father um, has had a lot of training. Also, I have a lot of admiration for my old man. Um, and so he really, really, uh, when I got laid off after Disney, so I've, I've been laid off a handful of times. First one was Vanguard when they closed that wasn't like, could I have been a better person? Yes, but that was a dysfunctional studio. We had a lot of problems. I could write a whole book. That's a fascinating. I still use a lot of lessons there. Fascinating, fascinating. Tell me, I, tell me one uh, deep dive there. <laughs> uh, so the there was no management uh, in the last year, and so you had 110 people. It's a miracle that game shipped. Um, you had 110 people who were just so resolved to making that game and had been so in love with EverQuest. We literally made it, you know, in a vacuum, and there was conflict between the teams. And, and now, all of that, I have remained friends with a lot of the people. There have been a lot of apologies that have gone back and forth. When you look at the situation, it's amazing that we did what we did, and that you know there were able to be apologies afterwards. I think people recognized because we were working at the last six months. I was in the office six days a week from like eight in the morning until 11 or 12 at night, six months straight. I had a, I had a, I was so poor. Uh, I had a, a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter and jelly in my drawer. And I would eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches three times a day for months I have not had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich since I left Sigil like 13 years ago. <laughs> I will, I, I'm not saying I won't eat them, but if I don't have to, 
I'm not interested. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's what we had to, you know, that's what we had to do. It was a great experience. You know, I was young and it was awesome at the time. Yeah. But in retrospect, I realized it was really tough. And so, <clears throat> you know, now I can't remember what I was talking about before that, but <laughs> yeah, it's like the the strong culture when they when you need to kill mm. a project and yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody teaches anybody how to do that, yeah. you know. And so true. the problem is you have the games industry is filled with people who either got a lot of money or knew how to get investment, but they don't understand how to build games. Um, you know, it's loaded with people who have no management experience, who've either been leads for a long time or managers. But nobody ever told them like, yo, you're a jerk. You're killing morale. You're, you know, you know, there's this idea, and I still encounter it to this day, and I, I'm always combating it, which is if somebody has a if somebody's a problem on a team, mm. uh, get rid of them. You know, and there's no and it just turns into this plot, right? Like, well, I'm waiting for you to mess up and and I'm gonna document, oh, you messed up, here's your write-up, oh, here's your pip. Okay, you're out of here. And there's not this moment where if some if I have to fire somebody, I want it to be because they fired themselves. Yeah. You know? And all I've ever asked for is somebody to tell me that I've screwed up and to to give me a shot to get it fixed. I know my personality has a tendency to I, I tend to get myself in trouble. Uh, with my mouth, uh, just because I'm a talkative person. And so all I need sometimes is just somebody to pull me aside and say, like, hey, look, don't do that. You irritated me on this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. I'm going to follow it away. I'm going to be embarrassed, you know, uh, but I'm going to follow it away and go, like, I don't want to make that mistake again. I want to do better. Uh, and so because that's what I want, that's how I want to be managed. That's how I manage others. Um, and so it's, I just wish there was more of that. What about this game should done in, done in teams? What's your preference? What's you, what have you seen as the best way to operate a games team? That the team operates itself, these kind of independent teams, you know? Oh, man. Management involvement. But yeah. yeah. So. I am of the mindset now that there is no perfect way to build a game. Uh, there are a lot of wrong ways to build a game, but there's this interesting thing that games games are software up until the point until they become art. Uh, and what I mean by that is, if there was a formula to make the perfect game, EA and Activision would have found it by now, uh, and they would, you know, and, and they've got Madden on one side and Call of Duty on the other. And there's this methodology that's just like, do this thing. Yeah. And EA would love to turn all of their uh, products into the Madden. Hey, we know it's on a two-year timeline. We know this is what it takes. This is the tech. This is the, well, in this year, we'll do small update while we work on a big engine rework. We'll release that in the, you know, they have this kind of method down with, with Madden that I know they would love to reproduce on other teams because it's super efficient. The problem is the majority of games are not about their technical acumen or achievement. Mm. It's about resonating with a person. It's the reason why there's a million games on Steam and 
10,000 that have any sort of real connection with an audience. Mm. It's the reason why there's 100 billion books that have been written and 90% of them are garbage. Uh, because anybody can put words to a page, but putting words to a page that have meaning, that resonate, um, that speak to a group of people, let alone to a broad audience, right? Mm. I don't think people understand the challenge of creating something, you know, taking a $30 million investment and having, you know, 110 people get to a final product that ships and makes not only its money back, but enough for you to make another game and to have people speak well of it. And a lot of gamers will get their feathers ruffled and be like, well, that's, that's a real cynical way of looking at it. It's like, well, yeah, I'm sorry. Like my job, like if I was building things for charity, I'd go work for the Red Cross or, you know, so, like, like this is a job and my job is entertainment uh, and entertainment is a is a fickle, fickle mistress. I don't like. I have probably got more games that have not made it than I have games that have made it. And I've got games that have made it that are, frankly, not games I would play. Right? Like, I no longer. It's, it's funny. I interview now, and this kind of this is a this has been a real divisive thing. It, it has really gotten me a job and not gotten me jobs when I say this. And I, and I say this because it's really important and I imbue this uh, ideology into my teams, which is I'm not making the game for myself. If I was, I would quit. I'd go move to New Zealand. I'd go work for, on Path of Exile, right? Because that's a game I freaking love. And if I wanted to do that, I would go work on, work on Path of Exile. But I am not making games for me. I think everybody should go to Disney and work on some kid's game that they can't stand that ha- that will be made in the worst possible way and is, you know, just for kids. Because when you get to that low-level kids game, it's like there's no mechanics. It's just hold right on the D-pad and the princess will walk through the whole level and, and it's done, right? And any anybody who's like passionate about games, their soul will die. Uh, if, oh, I have to work on that. But the thing is, is what that teaches you goes back to what we started this conversation on, which is serving others. My job is to serve the player base. I can't always give them what they want because I have to balance serving my team and their families uh, and the company. And I'm not under any illusions. I don't work for a family. I don't like it when people say like, come work for us, we're a family. It's like, nah, I already got one of those. And I like them. This is a business. I will exchange my services for cash because I need that to survive. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, it's a contract. I have no, I don't want to say I have no loyalty because that, that sounds shady, but my eyes are wide open. That company has no loyalty to me because as soon as loyalty family is, I have no money, but I'm still going to sacrifice to take care of you because you're my son or you're my daughter or you're my yeah. spouse, right? Yeah. I will sacrifice food off my shelf to make sure that you are safe because you are my family. A company can't do that and won't do that. Mm. So they're going to come down to it and say like, we're out of money. I got to let you go. It doesn't matter if you're my favorite employee or not. I have to let you go. Yeah. 
And and so by the same token, I prioritize my function in life as my wife. I must take care of my wife, right? Uh, and so what does that mean? Am I going to be at work? Am I going to continue to work for a company who keeps me in the office six days a week for 14 hours a day? No, I'm too old for that. I have I my time is better spent with my wife. Nobody on their deathbed, nobody ever says, I wish I worked harder. I wish I'd been in the office more. I wish I'd never seen my kids. I wish I'd never seen my nobody says that. Yeah. They all say things like, I wish I would have been true to myself. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have had a better relationship with my wife or my husband. Yeah. And to me, I can't get that time back. Uh, so I want to work in places or create working environments that are about making games for others. And when we can get that, it was a long way around to get back to your question, which is like, when we have that mentality, I think it's a lot easier to be successful in your game. Because what you do is you look at it from the perspective of who am I serving and what do they need, right? And then on top of that, you go like, what do they want and what's cool and what's awesome? That's the art part of the game, right? And yeah. And so a good company, I think, the best structure that I have found has always been a team of people who are a mix of heads down, quiet workers who will never speak up, not that that's a good or bad thing, mix of people who are super bold and super passionate and will speak up and push the boundaries. But at the end of the day, one individual who has the strength to be where the buck stops, right? To make a call when a call needs to be made, who has an attention to detail to say, this is right and this is wrong, and who has the creative acumen to know in their gut, this is solid, right? This is solid or this isn't, and is able to make those calls. I can't tell you how many projects have fallen apart because it's either been designed by committee or some executive somewhere just walks in and is like, my four-year-old boy didn't like this. It's like, cool, we're building it for 13-year-old girls. Thanks for your feedback. Uh, you know, I, like, I appreciate that. Uh, or, or indecisiveness, right? Paralyzed through indecisiveness, because not making a decision is making a decision. Uh, it is. So when you can get that structure where you have a good mix of, of people who are, you know, across that type, personality type, working together well, and you've got a strong, I hate to use the word visionary, but there's really, it's kind of what I'm getting at, and good managers. Right, at least one or two good people managers who can handle the inevitable conflict or encouragement, or um, I think that's where you really succeed. Yeah, thinking about these big companies, like we we're just talking about EA, uh, your stint there with the Galaxy of Heroes is super yeah. interesting. How did that experience shape you as a game developer? Oh man, massively. Uh, that that was. Um, That was a really good time in my career. Also, one of the hardest moments in my career, I actually wound up having conflict with the general manager, and it uh, I wound up resigning for that. And I stayed for three months. Uh, I, I, I took a long kind of resignation. And in that, it was a really humbling moment where I wound up building on my own, I got kind of assigned this project. I wound up 
building an entire update on my own. And it was the first update we had put out that was pretty much bug free because I had the time to, you know, be mindful of it. Also, we were still learning. We hadn't expected the success that we got. So this was a really great opportunity. And at the end of it, kind of we all realized like this is a solvable problem. We can actually resolve this conflict in a good way. I wound up staying. I wound up like two months later getting promoted to the lead design role. Um, so it really worked out. It was a really good thing because it um, there were two things there. There was that personal growth that happened, right? I realized something about myself. It was kind of, I don't want to say it was one of the last big edges that needed to be sanded off of me because you never know. But it was what I see is the culmination of all of the things that I had been, I was being prepared for this moment. And that moment that happened was kind of the last light bulb that was like, I can finally be a better person. And it really, really changed changed me and changed my life. And it really illuminated a lot of things. It also changed how I was as a spiritual person, how I was as a, you know, it really was kind of the last moment where I had been working on getting Daniel at work and Daniel at home closer and closer. And that was the last moment that was like, bing, who I am at work is who I am at home. It was awesome. <clears throat> and, uh, and, but from a work perspective, that's where I really learned also, because at that point I got to manage everybody. All the designers were now reporting to me. And I got to see this broad range of people, manage them. I was managing all of live operations from a design perspective. So trying to preserve what I believe to be the creative integrity of the game versus the need to continue to hit more and more impossible numbers uh, with an org. And uh, look, this is not a dig against EA. EA has been trying to crack that mobile space for a long time. They did not expect Capital Games to do it. And when they did, they did not know how to respond to it. And so we were literally going through this era collectively in how do we do this? How do we keep this game successful? And inevitably, in a company that is bottom line focused on how do we create more teams that operate like Madden, you're inevitably going to have conflict. And again, conflict is not a bad word. You're inevitably going to have conflict as you try to understand how does this team operate? How does this product succeed in this space? What can we do and how do we continue to hit these numbers on a division that we're trying to get ramped up? So it was a super interesting time. And I got to be a voice for the preservation of the player. And that was a really, really amazing. I learned so much about data beyond what you and I used to talk about uh, and my time in Finland. Like it was, I got to put a lot of practical things into practice, right? The things that we had talked about and the things that I had kind of learned in passing in Finland, I actually got to kind of put rubber to the road and it was such a great moment. And now it's like, I'm working on a PC console title and there's so many of these mobile things where I'm like, cool, we need to be doing this. We need to be doing that. We need to be doing... And there are going to be a lot of people who hear that, right? And they're going to say like, oh, this guy's trying to take mobile into PC gaming. Oh, it's going to be crap. But they're not listening to the part that it's like, no, no. The thing that I learned the most that I loved was how to truly listen to the player. Because you look at the forums, forums are always a mess, right? 
on Galaxy Heroes, it got to the point where I could look at Reddit, I could look at our forums, and I could go, I have a list of 100 people, and they are the rabble-rousers, right? They're the people who are the most vocal. I know who they are. I guarantee you, anytime a thread gets out of control, 40% of those people are in that thread. And new players or new forum posters who only last one or two posts or whatever, you know, they're kind of in and out. And what I learned to do was the forums and Reddit are a great area where you go, their smoke is their fire. And then you go and you look at the data and you go like, I see people are complaining about this thing, but the behaviors, the, the things that people are actually doing don't bear this data out. Uh, or bear this argument out. And the problem is when you are developing something that number one is a deeply beloved intellectual property like Star Wars, and number two is achieving a critical mass of millions, I mean, a million daily users, right? It is fundamentally impossible to create a game that will have no complaints, Mm. uh, especially when it's near and dear to people's hearts. And so you have to, for the sake of your own sanity, for the sake of the survival of the game, for the sake of the majority of the player base, you have to discern what are things that you're just never going to be able to address because it's just everybody's going to have their own vision, their own idea, the thing that they think is cool, the thing that they want, and what is a sustainable, I can continue to do cool things. And that's not to say like, I want to make everything vanilla. I don't. I want to make interesting things that challenge people. But at the same time, like when you work for a studio like EA, you have revenue projections. You have to hit. That's not an option. Um, And so you have to balance this thing of like, I have to make X amount of money and I still have to sustain this. I think that's why I really love... Um, kind of this arena net 2.0 that I'm in right now because yeah, we need to make revenue, but it's not at the cost of preserving what arena net is about, which is, Hey, we make great games and we make games that people really want to be a part of. And we're about communities. And, and so, you know, I can finally take this thing and go like, yes, that would make me a ton of money, but that's not the right thing for, for our audience. So EA, man, that was such a, that was such a great experience. I, you know, Everybody believes something different, but I would say that if I, if I was a uh, like, the world is orchestrated and fate and God and you know things are being directed like EA, that Star Wars Galaxy Heroes was really a beautiful culmination of, at the time, thirteen years of a journey that I was on, and leaving there really that that moment where I got. You know, where I realized like I'm not going to resign, and then I got promoted, and then you know I did another two years there. That was like this turning point. That the last three or four years has just been like I feel like I'm on the other side of something. You know, I feel like I'm I'm on a new journey now. So professionally, I learned so much. Personally, it was this breakthrough. Um, but I still talk to my old colleagues. We talk about the golden age of CG capital games and and uh, how much. Like I really loved my team. I would hire ninety percent of them on the spot, you know. So mm. yeah, what an experience. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great games business can be something else entirely. 
That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use IronSource's Game Growth platform, which takes care of both sides of the business, helping you monetize and to fuel your user acquisition. I for one wish we were using these guys in the early days of Next Games. You might also have heard of their Level Up podcast and a Medium blog. In terms of gaming content, this blog is up there with the best, featuring game industry experts talking all things game design, development, and growth. See for yourself by searching for Iron Source Level Up on Medium or Spotify. Now we're living in a new world, like, <laughs> like the, the coronavirus. I want yeah, to touch yeah. base on that because I think one topic that doesn't really get talked a lot about is, you know, jamming on, you know, a concept remotely, <clears throat> you know, with a couple of people who are also like working on a design for a game. Like, right. how can that actually be even like created when you're remotely, when you're... <sighs> you know, looking at each other on a video call. Yeah. yeah. So I think it goes back to personality types. So one of the things that I've also really been pushing with our team and upwards to our management structure is I am not judging people in the same way that I would if we were in the office. What I have found is that 95, maybe more, 95% or more of all people cannot work from home. Uh, they need to be in an office collectively. Part of it is, and you know this, right? You have a family. You got kids. I found, so I am, it's just my wife and I. I love my wife. I actually love being around my wife. So this has been glorious. Uh, but I can be in the same room with my wife 12 hours a day, 20, 30 days in a row, and we're cool. We've been in that situation multiple times. We have a very, very great relationship in that regards. Uh I have found that if you have kids uh, and uh, you go to work as a vacation, uh, so a lot of people that I know, that's where they're like, I go to work, it's great, and then I love being home. I love being home, but I go to work to get away. It's like, great, I love being at work. Me, I'm like, if I have PTO, I'm burning it, right? Because I want to be at home. I want to go do other things. Not that I don't love my job and I'm not committed to it, but it's like, it's a different thing for me. Yeah. So... So there's that. Number one, you have families and people need to be at work to balance their work-life existence. Totally fine. Totally normal. That's how most humans function. Mm. Then added to that, home is a distraction for a lot of people. It's really easy. You're comfortable. Hey, I'm going to go and grab a cup of coffee. Oh, hey, I'm going to... Oh, this is all. I'm going to go do this thing. So the structure of being in a building of an hourly schedule of your producer, that sort of stuff. It is conducive. Most people are not self-starting. You know, every re- every job description is like, we want a self-starter. It's like, no, you don't because 90% of the people are not self-starters. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is human nature. And we wind up having teams of people who are not self-starters just because that's not their personality. And they thrive under a structure and under a producer, and under sprints, and under you know the, the, the stuff that we do. And that's why when you have a well-oiled team, you get such great work out of them. So most people are not designed to work from home. And then add on top of that, that people need human contact, even the loners, even the Finns, even Finns need human contact. That's yeah. scientifically proven. And so 
being in an office keeps a person sane, I believe. Now, the con- you know, the converse of that obviously is in an office too long, right? So it's the balance. So working from home, I have really worked hard to extend a lot of understanding and grace to our team. You know, when people, when we do our calls or whatever, the first thing that I'm concerned about is like, I'm not concerned about your work output because I realize that this work from home, we're down 30%, 60%, you know. Hey, if you can only do a handful of hours today because it's driving you mad, do a handful of hours and go for a walk and chill. Like, it doesn't matter. I have a lot of team members who are alone. They don't have family. They're moved in from another area. They're not married. They don't have a a partner. So they're quarantined alone. Mm. And loneliness is a killer. I mean, in Finland, you know that. Like, loneliness is a killer. And so, making sure that we're doing one-on-ones with especially with people who are alone especially with people who are struggling to adjust to trying to work with their young kids around and and so my thing is like i've had to tell them repeatedly like i don't care i don't care about your output right now you know obviously if you're just using it as an excuse to sit around and play games all day yeah i have a problem with that okay that that's a problem but I'm not tracking hours. I'm not tracking output. You know, just keep moving forward. Mm. You know, if you're, and how are you feeling? What's going on? Like, and I'm not looking to be your psychologist. Some people want to open up a lot to me, other people are more closed off, but it's giving them the option and letting them know you're not forgotten. No. I do think about you. If there's anything that I can physically do to encourage you or to provide something for you, I'm going to help you out. So with all of that said, I think you can build remote games. The last Epoch guys, right? 11th hour games. Uh, they're building kind of a Path of Exile, Diablo kind of uh, ARPG. Those guys are all remote. And the yeah. output that they're cranking through is amazing. I believe they're a finished studio too, aren't they? Yeah, it's actually, you brought a good point. So it's the lockdown is the problem. It's not mm-hmm. the remote, but it is that yeah. like forced isolation yep. that is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. some look, some people can work remotely. And like I said, the last Epoch guys, eleventh uh, hour games, they're a great example. I think that entire team is remote, spread around the world, and they are they are hitting updates and everything. But they found people who thrive. I have a friend, I have a really good friend who I, I met him and he was working on Kerbal Kerbal Space Program too, and now he's over at Bungie. And he and I joke all the time, he loves working from home. Like he wants to be a contractor his entire career because he's a super organized type A guy. He writes his schedule out. I make fun of him. He writes his day out on a whiteboard. I'm like, who does that? Who does that? Well, this guy does. And he's brilliant. He's a brilliant young man. He's super motivated. He's young. He's like under 30. And he's already got all this like personal success because he is motivated. I'm like... I can't keep a schedule on my day off to save my life. Like if you said, Daniel, you have to live by a schedule, I'd be like, see ya. I just, I hate schedules, which is why I love producers so much. A good producer is wonderful for me. Mm -hmm. I need work. I need to go in five days a week. I need the discipline, the structure. I need that. Uh, I like being in an office. I So I think you know this. I was working in Russia for... Uh, about a year this last year. And I was working from home and then flying out there for a week to two weeks every month. 
I relished the moment that I was able to be in the office because it created this structure and I was around people. Although it was weird because everybody spoke Russian and it was like, I was still isolated. It was very weird. Uh, but the working from home, I was like, oh, I can't. This is, I would have to get up super early. I was starting my day at five in the morning and I was working until three and I was just like, ah. Oh. So, yeah. so there are people. So if you can find people who are truly that like, I love to work from home. Yeah, dude, you could totally do a remote team, but they have to have that personality. They have to be motivated. They have to be the kind of person that's going to give you deliverables without a producer. And I'm not that kind of person. Like I could do, you know, I've consulted, I think for you guys and a couple other teams in Finland and, um, you know, yeah. that's fine. Small 40 hour, 80 hour, 120 hour projects, whatever, that's easy. But if you're like, hey, I, I want to hire you and I want you to be a remote, worker permanently i'm like i i'm sorry i just can't yeah and it doesn't really change the the more you practice it right no 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 not at all yeah. well i'm sure there are some people but i think then it's an innate personality thing and, and i'm sure yeah. some psychologist somewhere is gonna hear this and be like actually you're wrong the scientific studies show that blah, blah, blah. and i'm like cool all right fine i know myself well enough to know that i don't really want to work from home yeah. look you know what work from home is for me Work from home is, hey, there's a game I really want to play coming out. I don't have a really high workload. I'm going to take today. I'm just going to keep an eye on emails. And I'm just going to take a personal day and just, you know, I'm not going to be unavailable. That's what work from home is. And I only want to do that like once a year, twice a year kind of a thing. You know what I mean? Where you're just like, I just need a little break. So what's been the worst 24 hours of your career in gaming? Oh, capital games. Capital Games, Star Wars Galaxy Heroes, when we released the mods for the first time. That was, I mean, that, and I was the head of live ops at that point. We were up for two days straight trying to fix that. We had to pull. All right, so give you some context here because I don't want to rat anybody out because there are a couple people who were involved who are what who I consider to be not only amazing, amazing game devs, but are friends of mine that I love very dearly. But I will say this, the root problem with that update is that it was done in isolation, partly because there was passion for this particular thing, partly because the way that we were structured as a team hadn't been challenged and partly because we were still adjusting to our growth. So, so there were a lot of things in the pot that I think that like, had we been able to handle the success early, like if we had known and we had been ready for it, I think there would have been a better checks and balance system. Uh, had we not been under pressure to get releases out in an aggressive timeline and we were still dealing with every release had bugs, that, like critical bugs where we had to hotfix. So we had had like three major updates in a row where we had spent more time fixing hot, you know, pushing hot fixes. And so had we been in a better spot, I don't think it would have gone out that way. And I don't think this particular update would have been developed so in such an isolated way. But it is what it is. So I don't, I don't really, you know, it's not a dig against anybody. It's just where we were and what we had and the resources we had, and and we learned a lesson. Yeah. And so. The mods update went out and two critical things, two critical failures happened simultaneously uh, that had only one happened, we could have been able to deal with it, I think, more efficiently. But but with two of them, we just couldn't. The first was that 
a, a tier of mods that were not supposed to be released were released and were super acquirable and they were the they were game breakingly overpowered and we had to remove those from players inventory uh, and compensate them and turn the, that bug off that alone was brutal what made it worse is that we didn't catch that problem as quickly as if that had been the only bug had that been the only bug we would have caught that within an hour of release and we would have been able to just deal with it right then <clears throat> i think and my memory kind of fails me here at this point i think we didn't catch that for almost eight hours Wow. Uh, because the other bug that went out was wrong stats and wrong drop rates across the board. Mm. So we were just, uh, and on top of that, the larger challenge, the larger, I'll, I'll just say it what it is, the larger failing that I, that was a great lesson for me professionally and, and one I, I hold super dear to my heart is we, what, people don't realize that happened with mods was we had a game on 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 the one side pre-mod release we had a game that was easy to understand hey i know i do this this and this i get this okay if i want this to have more power i do this this and this i push this button this much currency is consumed i gain this much power and it is static everybody's the same right very easy to understand what mods did was it said, hey, all those stats that you have never looked at, that have never really been exposed in an easy way, that you don't even know, what is tenacity? What does that do? What does that even mean? Mm. That is now the most critical aspect of your progression. And if you don't know it and don't understand it, you are stopped. Oh, yeah. Okay? So we introduce this. Everybody gets a mod and they go like, Plus five tenacity. What does that mean? What does that do? I don't care. I what is speed? Oh, I want hit, crit hit. Uh, crit hit's always good. And so you could go into the leaderboards now. Now the game post mod is hey, we we've taught you all of this stuff. This is the core game. Mods comes in and says, like, just kidding. Not only is the core game changed, but we're not going to tell you anything about it, what anything means. We're not going to explain. We're not going to show you the difference in power. So now all of a sudden you're like, I'm on the leaderboard. I hit fight, a fight I should have won, I lost. And I have zero understanding of why I lost. I have zero understanding of what to chase to change yeah. that. Yeah. So that, that alone, we took, we lost a lot of money for at least two months. And, uh, the live team and I, while feature was committed, like our, our entire feature plan changed uh, because of that. Like it got scrapped. We had to do something completely different because we were scrambling to try to recover stuff. But they had a six-month lead. So we had six months before we could get this feature out. And so it fell to my team to figure out like, how do we stabilize the game? How do we stabilize the game? And that's where the event system that you see in the game now came into being. That was a, a design that came between myself and my lead, uh, my senior uh, content designer, Sean Phelps, uh, came up with that. He came up with the core idea. And then I came up with the idea of let's tutorialize characters. Let's give characters for free and show them, you know, do that event structure. So between Sean's concept and my concept and our collective execution inside 
inside live operations. I had a great live team, you know, Nyan Aguin, uh, Sean Phelps, Chris Vandell, like just all these guys who were so stellar at their work. We were able to get this stuff out. And before they could get the feature out, we not only managed to recover all of the daily revenue that we had lost, but we increased it. We probably doubled our daily revenue over the course of three and a half to six months. So by the time feature launched, we were already stronger than what we were pre-mods. And then that new feature came on board and boosted us even more. So uh, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not solo taking credit here. There were a lot of great people. Nick Reinhardt, our producer, who had the foresight to see what we were talking about and the and the uh, mind to understand what we were talking about and to really push that. Uh, you know, our analytics team being on board with this. Just there were so many good people and. I had really great, Sean was super fast at just pumping content out. So those people in those spots, the willingness to brainstorm, like how can we solve the core, to being able to identify the core problem. Hey, people don't know how to use characters. Uh, hey, people don't know what this means. Hey, characters don't have value if they're not Han Solo or Leia or some you know, top line person. How do we solve that? So being willing to recognize that problem, mm. being willing to go like, we can fix mods. So that mods era was the worst 24 hours, but it was also the best because it opened up. It changed how we did things. It really kind of slapped us to say like, we can't keep doing this the same way. It wound up giving me more, the management wound up giving me more authority over live design in a, in a good way that allowed for us to operate in a way that was good for the people of on the live team. And so we were able to be more responsive, more creative, more aggressive. So it was the worst 24 hours, but the result was the best outcome. Yeah, I guess that's how you go and learn stuff is to see something fail and then understand yeah. like, hey, how do we evolve from this situation? Yeah. Final questions, man. Uh, your favorite book and why? Who? Um... That's a tough one. I was actually thinking about this quite a bit because things change so much in my life. There are things that I've really liked, things that I don't, things that I liked at a certain age that as I've matured, I look back on and I think like, I understand why I like that, um, why I don't now. I, I don't really have a favorite book per se. I really enjoyed Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. I think that was a, a really, really fantastic book. I really enjoy sci-fi and fantasy. Although sci-fi is kind of one of those things that's like nine times out of 10, I'll get into a sci-fi book. And then I, there's a character that starts talking and really it's just the author talking through because they want to use sci-fi as this thing of like, sci-fi appears to be the new modern religion. And so uh, sci-fi authors tend to want to preach their moral code through their characters, which is fine. I don't care if you want to write a book that has a theme or has a message. Like That's fine, man. We've been doing that with books since the dawn of time. What I don't like is when a character acts out of character or is simply just a mouthpiece. I wind up quitting a lot of sci-fi books just because I get to this point. I'm like, cool. Thanks for beating me over the head with this. Like, <laughs> Your lack of subtlety is amazing. Uh, yeah, that's that's really tough. I really like 
there's a really great autobiography, not autobiography. There's a really great bi- biography on Alfred Hitchcock that I've, I really love because I just love that the guy is such, such a weirdo. And I think Hollywood is such a cesspit of horrible people that, you know, even when people try to clean up and tell the, tell a wholesome story about a Hollywood person that still seeps through. So that was, that's an interesting book. I love history. I love Middle Eastern history. I love, I love religious history. So I'm super into, you know, religious texts. Like I, I find the Bible to be one of the most fascinating books, especially the old Testament. So uh, yeah, that's, uh, and right now I, you know, I've kind of dropped out of my comic book phase, even though I love art and I love comics. I've kind of dropped out of it a bit. I don't find that there's anything compelling in the comic scene right now. Um, Marvel and DC are garbage as far as I'm concerned. So even finding a good graphic novel has been difficult lately. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I don't, ha- I don't really have a good answer for that question, which sounds, you know, sorry, man. No I guess I'll go with Cryptonomicon from Neil Stevenson. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Hey, do you have a story that's shaped you in how you approach your work today? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of been telling them throughout this interview, but, uh, you know, I think I think there's kind of an overarching theme to my career that, that I have become hugely aware of. So I get asked a lot to talk to high school students or um, to talk to individuals who want to get into the games industry. Yeah. And, uh, and they all ask me the same things, you know, like, what degree should I get? Uh, what should I do? Can you look at my stuff? And, uh, and it's kind of always the same thing. I, I can pretty much, so every time, <laughs> teachers, hate, teachers hate it when I do this, but I always tell kids, like, you don't need to go to college. And if you're not a, a school person, if you don't think in that way, don't go. You're wasting your money. Um, and if you are going to go, don't get a video game degree. Okay. That's you're wasting your money. Get something practical because we, the games industry has one of the highest turnovers of any industry, right? Most people cannot cut it in this industry. And to find people that have been here more than five years gets harder and harder every year that goes by. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it does not pay well in the beginning. It is authoritative. So you're not going to get to build your own stuff unless you're doing it yourself or you get supremely lucky. You're never going to be Will Wright. You're never going to be Sid Meier. Uh, you're never going to be Dan Hauser from Rockstar. You're not going to work on Red Dead Redemption or Grand Theft Auto. You're, you're going to work on some piece of crap that you hate. You're going to work for somebody who is a dictator. That's just the way it is. And you're going to work brutal hours. And it's not until you really start getting into the later stage of your career that you have more options and you can be picky and you can start to say like, I don't want to work for that studio because you can get job offers. There's a hundred million junior game designers out there. Uh, There's a hundred million junior artists out there. That is just the way it is. So if you're going to go to college and you want to go to college, get a degree that will be functional outside of the games industry. Do not go to college for your own selfish reasons to party or to get a basket weaving degree or whatever. Treat it like you treat a job. I am paying to get something that will better me. Okay. And that requires discipline and self-awareness to say, I'm not going to college to party and to get the degree that I want. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Like that's the problem. People think they go, I'm going to go and get a, a degree in, you know, like Middle Earth Online or, or Tolkien, Tolkien philosophy. It's like, stop. If you're doing that, do that on the side as like a, a fun course. Yeah. Why are you wasting your time and your money? Look, whatever, free, free country, do what you want. But if you're asking for my advice, treat college as what it should be treated as, which is a very, very expensive service to teach you something that you cannot teach yourself, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So treat it seriously and go for something that maybe sucks and is hard, but will benefit you long-term. Okay, that, that's the first thing I tell people. But yeah. that said, you don't need college to be in the games industry. Yeah. So then the second thing is, Nine times out of ten, I can look at a designer, a potential designer, and I can tell if they're going to be, if they're going to be able to cut it or not. And the mm-hmm. reason is, is because I meet a lot of young people who come up to me and they'll say, like, I have learned all of these tools, I have built all this stuff, I have a mastery in Unreal, I can, I, I know Unity, rah rah rah. I'm like, great, you mastered the tools. Show me what you built, and then I look at what they built, and it's got like zero heart and soul. And you just look at it and you go, like. Okay. I liken it to when I was 12, 13, 14, I wanted to draw so badly. I wanted to learn to draw and I couldn't draw a straight line to save my life. And I taught myself to draw. Uh, I taught myself to draw. I went to classes. I picked up books and I got to the point that I was technically decent. I could actually draw. But as I got older, 18, 19 years old, I realized I have no creative artistic spark for drawing. I can't, I can't, I don't see pictures. So I, when I think, when I talk, when I dream, I don't see pictures. I narrate things in my head. Everything is a, it's like a file cabinet sort of a thing. Like I, if I want to recall something, it's a description in my head, right? My wife is a fantastic 2D artist. She sees the image of what she wants to draw and then she draws it. I can't do that. For me, what I found was I could not draw things if I was not directly looking at reference. And I realized I will be able to execute art from a technical perspective, but it will never have the heart and soul that my wife's work has, right? She has a style. I never was able to develop a style per se. And it's the same thing in design. I meet a lot of people who can technically implement the work. Yes but have no understanding of design. They have no empathy of for a player. The way that they think is very systematically, this would be cool because I saw this in this game. It's like, yeah, but it has no context to this game and it's not adaptable. And the stuff that you're building is unapproachable or impregnable by a player. You know, there's so many people who build but have no concept of how the player will touch it and interact with it, their emotion to it, what it will lead them to, why it will lead them to that next thing. So and then I've met people where it's like, don't worry, I could teach you the tools, right? I could teach you the tools till the cows come home, but I can't I can't imbue you with the spark. So uh, I've had to tell people like, I think you've got great technical acumen. I think you might be a better technical designer. Um, you know, or a tools designer, or an, or a, a scripter, or whatever. But but as a, but it's like a, it's hard to tell people. Like I just don't think you have the chops to do design. Yeah. Do you uh, think it's like from transitioning from 
basically pre- premium games to free to play is there like even more need for that creative understanding yeah because free to play was born out of exploitative you know an exploitative background right like free to play the original free to play stuff was hyper exploitative and i mean i'm sure there are examples where it isn't but collective consciousness holds that you know that zynga model in the beginning really was how people were thinking about it and as we move away from that and as we start to move to this concept of you know, look you and i've talked about this right the early days of mobile was like retention was 137 right and and it was all about like can we get people to convert and monetize by day 5 if we can't get people to convert by day 5 and it was all about driving numbers of people through in the hundreds of thousands a day to get 15% day 5 spend hmm. you know we now realize that that is no longer the methodology and now when we think about games we go, what does D360 look like? What does D365 look like? How do I keep people? What's 30? Sure, I'm still using 135 or 137 to kind of get an indication of our, if people are bouncing in 137, that we got a problem, right? But now it's like 15 is an indicator of, okay, we have a healthy on-ramp. I'm not looking necessarily to convert people monetarily in those first 15 days if it happens great but but really first 15 days is do i have a healthy retention for these people i'm driving through 30 is where i'm looking at what is revenue looking like at 30 because that's that's a good indicator that you know if you've spent in that 30 days and you've stayed that means you're not buying and bouncing right mm-hmm. i don't want that yeah but really what I'm looking at is what does D60 look like? What does D90 look like? And it's becoming about creating communities in our game. Even how we think about big spenders. And I hate the term whales because I feel like it's a derogatory term. I understand it, but I don't like I know it comes out of Vegas. I get that it's outside of us, but even how we perceive that whale group has changed. It used to be the philosophy was 90-10, right? 10% of your players support 90% of your audience. But that is shifting. We're now looking at saying, actually, how do I get 50% or more of my audience giving me five bucks a week or 20 bucks a month? And then that high-end, super small, big spender group, they're the icing on the cake, right? So then it becomes, I am no longer dependent on a volatile group where if 2% or 5% leave, that's a massive revenue hit. Now I have a more stable group of people. I, you know, from, from EA, we call them the committed players, right? I'm concerned about that committed player group, right? Have you logged in every day for the last five days and have you spent money in the last 48 hours, right? That group is always going to be in, in flux, right? There's always going to be people coming in and out of that all day, every day. So it's not going to be the same core people. That's okay. But as long as that group remains solid, strong, healthy, cared for, my whale group can fluctuate and I don't need, it's not going to be as dramatic. That said, if I'm paying attention to my committed player group and I'm creating a game where people want to be there five days and want to spend in small amounts consistently, by nature, I've created a stable game where a lot of that 
whale group is going to remain more stable because I've created a healthy game, right? So by focusing on that healthy part. Yeah. And that's good. I think that's good behavior irrespective of what you're in. Mobile, free-to-play, you know, one-shot, you know, $60 title, MMO. I think it's good. I think it's good a good way to think about your people regardless. So is the healthy metric, is that the, the retention uh, 360 or... Are there other metrics, do you think, for measuring health? Absolutely. Think? So I think retention is the biggest one um, just because it's easy to see. If people aren't sticking around, you, there's no other metric matters, right? Like, yeah. so it's like, cool, I could look at ARPU and ARPDAO and all these other fancy monetary terms. But if there's no people, that number isn't <laughs> going to be good anyway, right? So who cares? Yeah, yeah. And besides, ARPDAO can be great. If you have 10 players, right? It doesn't mean your revenue is great. It doesn't mean your game's healthy. So, so retention is the most important metric to me. The second most important metric is that committed player metric that I was telling you about because yeah. it incorporates financial behavior as, long, as well as retention behavior, as well as time, how much time they're spending in it. You know, And then you can kind of like, if you're a committed player group starts declining super rapidly, you go like, there's a problem. Now I can look at my other metrics and try to determine like, where are they getting stopped? Is it is it a spend issue? Hey, are they stopping because, are they still retaining, but they've stopped spending? Why? Or are they still spending, the ones who are staying are spending, but retention is cratering what's going on? You know what I mean? So those are the two that I use as my guiding lights. And largely I'll look at retention in the early parts of the project hey you know the project is just released i don't care about the committed player metric yet you know am i getting people in are they staying what's their conversion are we going to have a healthy game as we mature that's where i'll switch from retention to committed player because that like i said incorporate rolls up retention it rolls up some of our monetization metrics now i can look at that and go that's healthy it shouldn't be declining more than a one and a half to two and a half percent rate day over day, uh, you know, where I'm not refilling it, right? But I should be able to refill above that rate. If I start exceeding two percent, I start to get worried um, because that means like something is happening. So, mm. so I think it's more transitioning towards like the next things that will happen for gaming will be that we get even more player centric, player first. As an approach, you know, the pro- <laughs> I'd love to think so, uh, but the problem is with the games industry is there's nothing. There's, we don't have any sort of formality, right? Like you and I have a relationship because we got lucky to meet each other. Samuel introduced us. You know, as with all fans, I didn't know if you liked me at first, uh, <laughs> and we've managed to maintain and build a relationship over years. And so I've managed yeah. to exchange knowledge with you multiple times in a different climate, in a different area, with a different corporate think. Mm-hmm. And I'm super lucky that I have been able to incorporate our conversations into my own personal growth and then carry that forward into the company. How many people have that? You know, and I have these relationships with people in Russia, and so I get to see kind of how they do it with Finland and the US, uh, you know, and in these other places. So I'm fortunate in that I am self-motivated to meet people, learn what they're doing, incorporate it in and try to better myself. But we don't have a methodology in the games industry where I can send designers to go and learn 
certain things. You know, we, it's not like you leave EA and Activision and Disney and all these other companies and go, I will carry all of this procedural knowledge forward and do it here. This is the way we do it in the industry. That doesn't exist. Yeah. So the problem is the industry is always led, in my opinion, by somebody who breaks out and does something outside of the norm like Supercell did, right? The industry changed because Supercell was able to break out of the norm and make a bajillion uh, simoleons uh, by doing things way differently. And then everybody's like, oh, uh, maybe we should do that. And even trying to convince people stateside that, hey, let's build a supercell style team where it's like just let people do their things and you don't get in the way let them kill their own thing they can't i have not met a studio yet i tried to get that pitched in ea and it's just like the concept just can't i don't know what it is like i think it's just gonna have to be done by somebody as a startup and find success for that to really take root here everybody wants to be supercell in the states but nobody wants to commit to the level of uh empowerment uh, and uh, and the willingness for the teams to do their own things and kill it on their own. Like nobody, everybody's afraid of that. And so it never happens uh, because the idea of just like letting a group of people and not letting the CEO get involved and kill stuff, like who would do that? That's, you know, so it has to change. I think our industry changes because somebody got money, was able to do something, built it the way they wanted to. And then it's like, wow, this, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, truly is. Hey, Daniel, I'm going to ask the last question now. Do it. If, if there's designers, people want to know more about, like you have so much to share. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? You can always add me on LinkedIn. Uh, my LinkedIn is just forward slash Daniel McLaren. Uh, and you can email me directly. My email is ninjadan at gmail.com. Literally ninjadan at gmail. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Facebook. Uh, I don't do social media, so I have no LinkedIn. Um, so please, I, I actually encourage people, email me directly. I don't mind at all. I'm happy to talk with people. Um, so yeah, feel you're, free. You're great, Dan. So, <laughs> really, it's really oh, you're too kind. Yeah, you're, you're too kind. Hey, hey, take care. Uh, you guys stay safe there and stay yeah. sane. During Thanks, these. buddy. Hopefully you as well. Final months. Yeah. <laughs> final weeks, I hope. Yep, yep. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Hey, you as well. Thanks, buddy. Bye. Thanks again, Daniel, for coming on the show. Please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when the next episode is available. Also, we have a weekly newsletter going out with a lot of interesting content related to gaming startups. You can subscribe to that at EliteGameDevelopers.com. See you next time. Bye-bye.